Section 20 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger. Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant. Chapter 20. General Fremont in Command. Movement against Belmont. Battle of Belmont. A narrow escape after the battle. From the occupation of Paducah up to the early part of November, nothing important occurred with the troops under my command. I was reinforced from time to time, and the men were drilled and disciplined, preparatory for the service which was sure to come. By the 1st of November I had not fewer than 20,000 men, most of them under good drill and ready to meet any equal body of men who, like themselves, had not yet been in an engagement. They were growing impatient at lying idle so long, almost in hearing of the guns of the enemy they had volunteered to fight against. I asked on one or two occasions to be allowed to move against Columbus. It could have been taken soon after the occupation of Paducah, but before November it was so strongly fortified that it would have required a large force and a long siege to capture it. In the latter part of October, General Fremont took the field in person and moved from Jefferson City against General Sterling Price, who was then in the state of Missouri with a considerable command. About the 1st of November, I was directed from department headquarters to make a demonstration on both sides of the Mississippi River with the view of detaining the rebels at Columbus within their lines. Before my troops could be got off, I was notified from the same quarter that there were some 3,000 of the enemy on the St. Francis River, about 50 miles west or southwest from Cairo, and was ordered to send another force against them. I dispatched Colonel Oglesby at once with troops sufficient to compete with the reported number of the enemy. On the 5th, word came from the same source that the rebels were about to detach a large force from Columbus to be moved by boats down the Mississippi and up the White River in Arkansas in order to reinforce Price, and I was directed to prevent this movement if possible. I accordingly sent a regiment from Bird's Point under Colonel W. H. L. Wallace to overtake and reinforce Oglesby with orders to march to New Madrid, a point some distance below Columbus on the Missouri side. At the same time, I directed General C. F. Smith to move all the troops he could spare from Paducah directly against Columbus, halting them, however, a few miles from the town to await further orders from me. Then I gathered up all the troops at Cairo and Fort Holt, except suitable guards, and moved them down the river on steamers, convoyed by two gunboats accompanying them myself. My force consisted of a little over 3,000 men 
and embraced five regiments of infantry, two guns, and two companies of cavalry. We dropped down the river on the 6th to within about six miles of Columbus, debarked a few men on the Kentucky side, and established pickets to connect with the troops from Paducah. I had no orders which contemplated an attack by the national troops, nor did I intend anything of the kind when I started out from Cairo. But after we started, I saw that the officers and men were elated at the prospect of at last having the opportunity of doing what they had volunteered to do, fight the enemies of their country. I did not see how I could maintain discipline or retain the confidence of my command if we should return to Cairo without an effort to do something. Columbus, besides being strongly fortified, contained a garrison much more numerous than the force I had with me. It would not do, therefore, to attack that point. About two o'clock on the morning of the 7th, I learned that the enemy was crossing troops from Columbus to the west bank to be dispatched, presumably, after Oglesby. I knew there was a small camp of Confederates at Belmont, immediately opposite Columbus, and I speedily resolved to push down the river, land on the Missouri side, capture Belmont, break up the camp, and return. Accordingly, the pickets above Columbus were drawn in at once, and about daylight the boats moved out from shore. In an hour we were debarking on the west bank of the Mississippi, just out of range of the batteries at Columbus. The ground on the west shore of the river, opposite Columbus, is low and in places marshy and cut up with sloughs. The soil is rich and the timber large and heavy. There were some small clearings between Belmont and the point where we landed, but most of the country was covered with the native forests. We landed in front of a cornfield. When the debarkation commenced, I took a regiment down the river to post it as a guard against surprise. At that time I had no staff officer who could be trusted with that duty. In the woods, at a short distance below the clearing, I found a depression, dry at the time, but which at high water became a slough or bayou. I placed the men in the hollow, gave them their instructions, and ordered them to remain there until they were properly relieved. These troops, with the gunboats, were to protect our transports. Up to this time, the enemy had evidently failed to divine our intentions. From Columbus, they could, of course, see our gunboats and transports loaded with troops, but the force from Paducah was threatening them from the land side, and it was hardly to be expected that if Columbus was our object, we would separate our troops by a wide river. They doubtless thought we meant to draw a large force from the east bank, then embark ourselves, land on the east bank, and make a sudden assault on Columbus before their divided command could be united. About eight o'clock we started from the point of debarkation, marching by the flank. 
After moving in this way for a mile or a mile and a half, I halted where there was marshy ground covered with a heavy growth of timber in our front, and deployed a large part of my force as skirmishers. By this time the enemy discovered that we were moving upon Belmont, and sent out troops to meet us. Soon after we had started in line, his skirmishers were encountered and fighting commenced. This continued, growing fiercer and fiercer, for about four hours, the enemy being forced back gradually until he was driven into his camp. Early in this engagement my horse was shot under me, but I got another from one of my staff, and kept well up with the advance until the river was reached. The officers and men engaged at Belmont were then under fire for the first time. Veterans could not have behaved better than they did up to the moment of reaching the rebel camp. At this point, they became demoralized from their victory and failed to reap its full reward. The enemy had been followed so closely that when he reached the clear ground on which his camp was pitched, he beat a hasty retreat over the river bank which protected him from our shots and from view. This precipitate retreat at the last moment enabled the national forces to pick their way without hindrance through the abatis, the only artificial defense the enemy had. The moment the camp was reached, our men laid down their arms and commenced rummaging the tents to pick up trophies. Some of the higher officers were little better than the privates. They galloped about from one cluster of men to another, and at every halt delivered a short eulogy upon the Union cause and the achievements of the command. All this time the troops we had been engaged with for four hours lay crouched under cover of the river bank, ready to come up and surrender if summoned to do so, but finding that they were not pursued, they worked their way up the river and came up on the bank between us and our transports. I saw, at the same time, two steamers coming from the Columbus side towards the west shore, above us, black or gray, with soldiers from boiler deck to roof. Some of my men were engaged in firing from captured guns at empty steamers down the river, out of range, cheering, at every shot. I tried to get them to turn their guns upon the loaded steamers above and not so far away. My efforts were in vain. At last I directed my staff officers to set fire to the camps. This drew the fire of the enemy's guns located on the heights of Columbus. They had abstained from firing before, probably, because they were afraid of hitting their own men, or they may have supposed, until the camp was on fire, that it was still in the possession of their friends. About this time, too, the men we had driven over the bank were seen in line up the river between us and our transports. The alarm surrounded was given. The guns of the enemy and the report of being surrounded brought officers and men completely under control. At first, some of the officers seemed to think that to be surrounded was to be placed in a hopeless position, 
where there was nothing to do but surrender. But when I announced that we had cut our way in, and could cut our way out just as well, it seemed a new revelation to officers and soldiers. They formed line rapidly, and we started back to our boats, with the men deployed as skirmishers as they had been on entering camp. The enemy was soon encountered, but his resistance this time was feeble. Again the Confederates sought shelter under the river banks. We could not stop, however, to pick them up, because the troops we had seen crossing the river had debarked by this time, and were nearer our transports than we were. It would be prudent to get them behind us, but we were not again molested on our way to the boats. From the beginning of the fighting, our wounded had been carried to the houses at the rear, near the place of debarkation. I now set the troops to bringing their wounded to the boats. After this had gone on for some little time, I rode down the road, without even a staff officer, to visit the guard I had stationed over the approach to our transports. I knew the enemy had crossed over from Columbus in considerable numbers, and might be expected to attack us as we were embarking. This guard would be encountered first, and, as they were in a natural entrenchment, would be able to hold the enemy for a considerable time. My surprise was great to find there was not a single man in the trench. Riding back to the boat, I found the officer who had commanded the guard, and learned that he had withdrawn his force when the main body fell back. At first I ordered the guard to return, but finding that it would take some time to get the men together and march them back to their position, I countermanded the order. Then, fearing that the enemy we had seen crossing the river below might be coming upon us unawares, I rode out in the field to our front, still entirely alone, to observe whether the enemy was passing. The field was grown up with corn so tall and thick as to cut off the view of even a person on horseback, except directly along the rows, even in that direction, owing to the overhanging blades of corn, the view was not extensive. I had not gone more than a few hundred yards when I saw a body of troops marching past me not fifty yards away. I looked at them for a moment, and then turned my horse towards the river and started back, first in a walk, and when I thought myself concealed from the view of the enemy, as fast as my horse could carry me. When at the river bank, I still had to ride a few hundred yards to the point where the nearest transport lay. The cornfield in front of our transports terminated at the edge of a dense forest. Before I got back, the enemy had entered this forest and had opened a brisk fire upon the boats. Our men, with the exception of details that had gone to the front after the wounded, were now either aboard the transports or very near them. Those who were not aboard soon got there and the boats pushed off. I was the only man of the National Army between the rebels and our transports. The captain of a boat that had just pushed out but had not started recognized me and ordered the engineer not to start the engine. 
He then had a plank run out for me. My horse seemed to take in the situation. There was no path down the bank, and everyone acquainted with the Mississippi River knows that its banks, in a natural state, do not vary at any great angle from the perpendicular. My horse put his fore feet over the bank without hesitation or urging, and with his hind feet well under him, slid down the bank and trotted aboard the boat, twelve or fifteen feet away, over a single gangplank. I dismounted and went at once to the upper deck. The Mississippi River was low on the 7th of November, 1861, so that the banks were higher than the heads of men standing on the upper decks of the steamers. The rebels were some distance back from the river, so that their fire was high and did us but little harm. Our smokestack was riddled with bullets, but there were only three men wounded on the boats, two of whom were soldiers. When I first went on deck, I entered the captain's room adjoining the pilot-house, and threw myself on a sofa. I did not keep that position a moment, but rose to go out on the deck to observe what was going on. I had scarcely left when a musket-ball entered the room, struck the head of the sofa, passed through it, and lodged in the foot. When the enemy opened fire on the transports, our gunboats returned it with vigor. They were well out in the stream and some distance down, so that they had to give but very little elevation to their guns to clear the banks of the river. Their position very nearly enfiladed the line of the enemy while he was marching through the cornfield the execution was very great as we could see at the time and as i afterwards learned more positively we were very soon out of range and went peacefully on our way to cairo every man feeling that belmont was a great victory and that he had contributed his share to it our loss at belmont was four hundred and eighty-five in killed wounded and missing about a hundred and twenty-five of our wounded fell into the hands of the enemy. We returned with a hundred and seventy-five prisoners and two guns, and spiked four other pieces. The loss of the enemy, as officially reported, was six hundred forty-two men, killed, wounded, and missing. We had engaged about two thousand five hundred men, exclusive of the guard left with the transports, the enemy had about seven thousand but this includes the troops brought over from columbus who were not engaged in the first defence of belmont the two objects for which the battle of belmont was fought were fully accomplished the enemy gave up all idea of detaching troops from columbus his losses were very heavy for that period of the war Columbus was beset by people looking for their wounded or dead kin to take them home for medical treatment or burial. I learned later, when I had moved further south, that Belmont had caused more mourning than almost any other battle up to that time. The national troops acquired a confidence in themselves at Belmont that did not desert them through the war. The day after the battle, 
I met some officers from General Polk's command, arranged for permission to bury our dead at Belmont, and also commenced negotiations for the exchange of prisoners. When our men went to bury their dead, before they were allowed to land, they were conducted below the point where the enemy had engaged our transports. Some of the officers expressed a desire to see the field, but the request was refused with the statement that we had no dead there. While on the truce boat, I mentioned to an officer, whom I had known both at West Point and in the Mexican War, that I was in the cornfield near their troops when they passed, that I had been on horseback and had worn a soldier's overcoat at the time. This officer was on General Polk's staff. He said both he and the general had seen me, and that Polk had said to his men, There is a Yankee. You may try your marksmanship on him if you wish. But nobody fired at me. Belmont was severely criticized in the North as a wholly unnecessary battle, barren of results, or the possibility of them from the beginning. If it had not been fought, Colonel Oglesby would probably have been captured or destroyed with his 3,000 men. Then I should have been culpable indeed. End of section 20. Recorded by Jim Clevenger, Little Rock, Arkansas. Jim at joc.clev.com.